I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular. I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the past few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative dictated by those in power. I won't ever trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your support. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive access to select content, and the opportunity to submit questions to future guests ahead of interviews. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And don't forget to also click the follow button so that you don't miss new episodes. You can subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack at meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Daniel Principe, Collective Shouts Youth Advocate and Educator. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm really happy to see you again, um, although over over the screen instead of in real life, alas. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great to be able to catch up. It was uncanny that we all crossed paths in San Francisco for a moment there. But yeah, it's good to be chatting from back here in Australia. I'm sure your listeners worked that out from my accent straight away. So <laughs> Somewhere over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that was so fun to see you all in San Francisco. What a funny coincidence. I, as as you know, have been doing work and, and you know, critical work around pornography for a long time. And my angle for such a long time was from a feminist perspective and mostly speaking to other women about pornography. Um, you know, I, I obviously would talk to men in my personal life, but you know, the, the, the whole, the criticisms of pornography really were not going very far 10 years ago. Um, there was the radical feminist view. There were people who were religious, you know, like the Christian right, if you want to call them that, who are critical of pornography, and then not very many other people. And I have, to my delight, noticed that a lot more men have been thinking critically about pornography and the way that it affects them personally, um, how it affects their mental health how it affects their relationships, um, and how, you know, how they first encountered porn and, and their porn use. And I'm thrilled that, 
that you have been speaking out about this openly and also talking to other men about it. So I'm curious to know how you you came to be involved in this work. You know, tell me a bit about your journey. Um, how did you first encounter pornography and what was your experience like? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to chat about it and share all that. And I think from, from the beginning, I just want to acknowledge that so many people, so many feminists, especially, uh, I'll acknowledge my colleagues at Collective Shout, Melinda Tankard, Reese, and obviously so many of the brave women who have, who have sacrificed a lot to speak up about this. And and, you know, I feel like I'm Johnny come lately to this in the sense of like, it is a lot easier to now speak out about the harms of pornography. And that's because a lot of people and a lot of women before us have spoken up about this. So I just want to acknowledge that we could talk about their names, but we know who they are and we celebrate and acknowledge their work and their legacy. For me personally, I was exposed to pornography when I was 11 years of age. I was shown by an older family friend on a home computer. And, you know, my life was pretty simple back then. It was go to primary school, come home and play footy or cricket and eat a lot of Italian food. And then all of a sudden, you know, this, this stimulation is introduced to me, what is obviously known as a super normal stimulus because our brains are not wired to be able to watch endless scrolling of other people engaged in sexual activity mediated through a screen. And so you have an 11 year old boy who has no concept of sex, of sexuality, uh, of bodies, of, of, of genitals, all of a sudden being exposed to this in, in such an extreme way. And that was probably part of my life, not on a daily basis, but something I would consume uh, probably every couple of weeks or whenever you had a free computer alone or something like that at a mate's house. And it wasn't until I heard a porn critical message, I would say at around age 20, where I went, oh, yeah, this this ain't good. And and its connections to exploitation, its connections to other people's harm was probably the motivating force to get me to quit pornography. Uh, but yeah, it was something that was there. But I also want to acknowledge it wasn't as accessible as what it is today. And I feel for young people having to navigate uh, pornography at a click of a button, smartphones in their pocket. Like I'm talking about the day and age where you had to wait to download a video. Uh, and that doesn't seem that long away, but those were the realities. And so that it, it in a sense tempered how radicalized you could become on on pornography and and its messages because you just couldn't access it uh, as readily and be bombarded with more extreme content through the algorithms but that was certainly uh, my introduction and as i say to the young boys here in australia it started to teach me things about men and women about sex about violence about respect about what private parts should look like, uh, what sex should look like, because education doesn't just happen in a classroom, it's it's happening all around us. And porn is the most powerful educator and sex educator. And so I had to start to unlearn that. And as much as I don't think it shaped me, it definitely does teach you to see women as pieces of me, as up for it, to you know joke with your mates about what women and girls are up for and these sorts of things. And I see that now, you know, uh, even in more extreme cases with the boys I work with. Yeah, I mean, the I think that a big part of the problem with porn today and the conversation around porn is that accessibility factor. I mean, I think that porn has always been harmful to women. Um, but I think that you're right. You know, when I was growing up, and when you were growing up, I don't know how, how old were you, or sorry, what year was it when you were 11? What year was that? Okay. So I don't know. Well, I'm 34 now. So that would have been, oh gosh, 
99, 2000, just before right. Y2K. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, at that point, there wasn't, you know, easy access to the internet. We didn't have smartphones. Mm. Um, and what what we're seeing now is not only that, I think, you know, so many kids, way more than before, way more than ever before, are being exposed to pornography really young. But it's really, I think, unavoidable. You know, in the past, you did in a lot of ways have to seek out porn. Of course, sometimes a, a friend or family member would show you a magazine or a video. But now you're just kind of bombarded with it all the time. You know, if you're on a smartphone, if you're on social media, if you're playing video games, if you're downloading videos, these pop-ups are going to come up and it's in your face all the time. Um, and I guess like, I, I'm wondering what you're, you're, you're speaking to a lot of young men. Um, you're talking to teenage boys, right. In, in yeah. high schools and things like that. What are they telling you about their experiences with porn? Sure. Yeah. With that, in terms of the pop-ups, the bots, you know, the boys are whisper, oh yeah, the sex bots. So this came like impromptu. Like I have my talk, I know what statistics I'm going to share. And the latest stats is that uh, young people average age of exposure is 13. That's for boys and girls. It's definitely younger for boys. It's probably more likely to be 11. But in terms of asking young people themselves, this happened impromptu one day. I was speaking to a grade like year sixes, right? And one of the boys was new to his school. And on Snapchat, this girl added him and he just assumed it was one of his friends at school, a new friend maybe. And he accepted this new friend. And within a moment, he's being sent links to adult content. And he said this in front of the class and I've learned to just kind of roll with whatever happens. And yeah, I've got my content to get through. But this was a few years ago and it was the first time I'd heard this. And I said, do you, do you mind sharing that? And and he shared it again. And then I turned to his other peers, you know, the class and say, boys, do, do you know what this young man's just said? How many of you has this happened to? And the staff are in the room, the teachers in the room, and 60% of these year six boys had had some sort of bots or predators drop, you know, porn or adult content into their feeds. And so I started asking this question in every session and I've been doing it over the last few years. And by the time we get to say grades nine, it's nearly 100% of boys have had this happen. And so adolescence and puberty is hard enough. And all of a sudden you've now got bots and predators dropping these links into your Snapchat, TikTok, Discord feeds, like everywhere they go, their gaming feeds. This is, this is just par for the course. And it's hard enough as it is to navigate this with raging hormones. And, and what I do want to say is like, we're pro-sex, we're anti-porn. So I want to very much validate that for the boys and young people, it is normal to be attracted to people, to have desires, to be aroused, to, to be interested in sex and bodies and pleasure and to be curious. Like that's completely normal. And it will happen for them all at different stages because they all have different biology and different social and relational experiences. But this is hijacking their sexuality. And, mm. and we're seeing the impacts of that where sexual violence, both at school and in the lives of young people are through the roof. One of the stats that I've recently discovered that I'm now sharing more readily is then we have 15 to 19 year old boys are the highest perpetrators of sexual violence, sexual assault in this country. And no one would think that, right? But that, that is the case. And clearly no one thinks that's innate to young men. 
So why is that a why is that happening? What's driving all of that? And the normalization of sexual violence and the expectations around that is something I hear from young men who feel that they either have to be sexually violent or they don't even recognize that their sexual violence is something that has been completely conditioned by pornography. And, and we're seeing the impacts of that uh, across the board, across socioeconomic factors, across whether it's a private school or a state-based school. It's, it's the stories are the same everywhere. The only thing is, is they're getting younger. Like the phenomenon yeah. of being a getting younger and younger. We used to speak to year 10s and above. And now last week I was speaking to year five and six boys, obviously age appropriate, but in ways to unpack what they're navigating. Yeah. I mean, you have to be, it's like, of course you don't want to be talking to kids who are in grade five and grade six, but like, this is the reality. So you do, you do have to address it. And I think that's probably really upsetting and really hard for parents um, I mean, that sexual violence factor is, is pretty hotly debated within the porn debate. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen stats and I'm sure you're more familiar even than I am around these stats, since this is the work that you're doing on a regular basis around how porn does impact sexual violence. Um, but there's this claim from people who will defend porn as sort of a harmless neutral just a fantasy um you know even maybe even it's healthy people people will tell me for example that actually porn mitigates rape so they'll say that you know if men don't have access to to pornography then they're even more likely to perpetrate sexual assault, sexual violence, things like that. Um, I will say that when, you know, when I first started having sex um, and when I was around, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, this was in the late 90s, um, sex was pretty normal. <laughs> like, it was pretty... Or vanilla. Yeah, exactly. It's what people would call vanilla which is fine. I've, I've never, I've never bought it. I'm like, you know, what's great having sex. <laughs> like you yeah. want to turn it into this like boring thing, but you know, like having yeah. just regular, whatever you want to call it vanilla, pretty good. Like you don't yeah. really need all these bells yeah. and whistles. And I don't That's really right. relate to that, but you know, it's not, I'm, I don't want to pretend as though all of my sexual experiences were great or positive. They certainly were not at that age. You're dealing with other young men who don't really know what they're doing either. But there was not this big pressure to essentially perform pornography. There wasn't, nobody was trying to choke me. And now we hear a lot, for example, about um, young men boys trying to to choke girls and you know girl i don't girls will ask for it too because i think they think that's what sex is that's what's sexy that's what boys want and you know the prevalence of things like anal sex and just yeah. just this idea that you're supposed to be doing all these kind of extreme acts or you know kinky acts or you know engage in in fetish play all of that stuff you know i think that's 
the the prevalence of that is has has changed a lot. I get that impression anyway. Phenomenon. What 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 else is the cause or the correlation? Like what else could you explain it with? Like why there's a BBC article from a few years ago that looks at sexually violent acts. I don't want to list them all, but they're gross in my opinion you know we're talking about strangulation it's not choking it's strangulation choking is when something is stuck in your throat strangulation is when you wrap your up the hands around someone and restrict their breathing which is a huge red flag for homicide you speak to any women's dv you know uh, services and if that happens to a woman that is a huge red flag to say this woman is at risk of dying Right. And yet we've sexualized this. We've normalized it. Hence, we have a campaign called We Can't Consent to This because women have been dying because of the quote sex acts gone wrong. And it's just like, where is this come from? Why is there so much violence and degradation? But back to the BBC report, it talked about these violent sexual acts and it asked the men themselves to report how much do you think pornography has played a role in influencing your desire to perform them? 80% of the men recognize to at least some extent or to a large extent pornography has shaped their desires. That's self-reflected mind you, that's self-reflected. So I actually think it would be therefore be more if it was to be an actual randomized control trial and, and look at the, the research and the impacts that way. With regards to all the other sexual violence, yeah, how else do you explain it? Why is there such a phenomenon of all these things? And of course, you can correlate it back to what has become more mainstream in pornography. And as Robert Jensen and many other great scholars have said, like as pornography has become more mainstream, it's become more violent, more misogynistic and more racist. And it's like, why is that? Why is there either a demand for or a conditioning of that demand? Because people want more extreme things to to get their dopamine hits. Uh, And and in terms of the whole, um, you know, mitigating rape, there is no research for that. All the research that I see is the actual opposite. So there's three key pieces of research here in Australia, starting at 2017, uh, conducted by the government, the Australian Institute of Family Studies report pretty much said, if you have two cohorts of young men, one cohort is consuming porn and the other cohort isn't consuming porn, the young men consuming porn are more likely to be sexually violent, more likely to commit sexual assault, more likely to believe rape myths and more likely to be a bystander if somebody else is sexually assaulted. It then goes on to say if you're consuming violent porn, which is sometimes framed as like this niche kind of dark fringe of pornography, when the research says that anywhere between 25 to 88 percent of mainstream porn is violent, depending which stats you go for, with up to 97 percent of that violence directed towards women. So we'll represent the research faithfully, but it says if you're consuming violent pornography, you as a young man are six times more likely to be sexually violent. That's just the one report. From there, we had our Our Watch report, which here in Australia addresses violence against women and children. It's our peak body addressing that and and similar findings, similar research. And just recently, at the end of last year, we had our national plan to address violence against women and their children. And it was the first time we've seen this national plan that actually acknowledges pornography as a driver of violence against women and Mm. girls. And so for me, it's now like even it's not contested in government, it's just clear cut. And even this week, we've just seen a huge rise of reporting here in Australia of the relationship between pornography and violence. It's now indisputable that even our opponents who are very porn positive five, 10 years ago, even have to say some porn is bad. We obviously believe all porn is bad to both consumers, relationships, performers and society. But even our opponents can't now deny the research 
and just the anecdotal evidence that continues to mount about porn inspired acts leading to harm. What do you think about those claims that men will become so sexually frustrated if they don't have access to things like porn? This, this argument's also applied to prostitution often. Um, that they will perpetrate sexual assault or that they'll commit violence. You know, these guys are so deprived of sex and sexuality and access to women and human touch and so on and so forth that they have to have some kind of outlet or else. Yeah, well, first of all, sex isn't a human right. No one's died from lack of sex. And so I just have a fundamentally different anthropology to this. I don't conceive of men as just slathering Neanderthals driven by their most base instincts. If that's how people want to view themselves, like have at it, but I don't think that's good for them and I don't think it's good for society. And fundamentally, I don't think it's true. Uh, no one is going to suffer because they're not able to have sex. Like that is a self-constructed mindset that people have. Um, I would just say that people can relieve themselves. Like no one owes you sex and pornography only fuels that entitlement, which leads to that angst, which you could argue is where we see such a drive of the incel community. So there's people who want to critique incels, you know, involuntary celibates, but they don't want to critique, well, why is there so much frustration? Why do these young boys feel so entitled to sex? Like, why do they feel that that is something the world and women owe them? And so if we don't actually address the drive, of it, well, no wonder there perhaps is more men feeling entitled to sex because they've been consuming pornography nonstop, teaching them that women are up for sex anywhere, anyhow, anytime, which is what the Children's Commissioner in the UK found. And that if girls resist, you just use more force, more pressure, more degradation to get what you want. So if that is your mental diet, well, of course, you're going to be so frustrated if you look at the world around you and you think that that's what's going on everywhere else. And that's the kind of sex men are taking and having with women. And you're sitting there not having that experience. Well, of course, you're going to be feeling sexually entitled. There's like a really warped view nowadays that I hear from a lot of young men and women around what men want and what women want and around expectations. And I think that, you know, men, young men seem to think that, I mean, young men who I would say spend too much time online, um, too much line, uh, time on like gaming, streaming websites. Sorry, I'm, this is not my world. So <laughs> sorry if I'm not going to like, like Discord, like Twitch, like those kinds of places. Um and on like internet forums in general, like they they seem very bitter about their lack of access to women. And they also think that what women want is, you know, like this Chad, like this hyper attractive, tall, handsome football player guy with money. They they think women are really superficial. And so they're bitter that they don't have this girlfriend that they seem to feel entitled to, as you mentioned earlier. And then by the same token, I you I I think that a lot of young women think that what men want and what men expect is pornography. Um, and they think that they have to pornify themselves and they have to send nudes and they have to be ready to go and be this hypersexual fantasy in order to get 
a boy or a young man to like them. And neither of those things are true. And I find it extremely frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I feel for young women feeling they have to conform to this bimbo aesthetic and, and, you know, violate their boundaries, violate their preferences, their bodily autonomy at the altar of, of porn and porn culture and men's sexual entitlement. It's one of the biggest tragedies of our work here in Australia is seeing supposedly empowered young women, again, from elite private schools all the way down to everyday schools. And we're supposedly living in this post Me Too generation. And we hear from young women all the time routinely saying, oh, it it was just easier to send him nudes. I didn't want to like ruin the friendship. It was just easier to hook up with him because I didn't want to hurt his feelings or upset him. Like these don't strike me as young empowered women making decisions that align with their values and what they want for their own sexual experiences and for their bodies and their safety. They very much seem like they're both groomed by the culture and then pressured and socialized within that in their own young person's social dynamics. And it's really tragic it's really really sad how often we hear that and and boys feel that they need to do this as well that they need to pressure girls and so it is just this really ugly uh, cultural dynamic we're in and, and and for me it is the fruit it's the outworkings of porn culture and it's not working for young people they're not actually having uh, healthy or safe sexual experiences at all let alone pleasurable or or enjoyable for that matter and we're now obviously hearing more of, of young boys uh, feeling this pressure because, yeah, everywhere I go, young boys tell me they feel this pressure to be tall, to be ripped and to have large penises and like no surprises where they're feeling these pressures from. And we speak to the nurse examiners, the clinicians, the, the therapists who are treating these boys who are doing things to alter their body image and body shape because they think they have to look like what they're seeing in pornography. And so it's harming. It's harming everyone. Um, but unfortunately, as Gail Dine says, if we lay waste to a generation of boys, we're going to lay waste to a generation of girls. And so much of it is seeing the harms for young women uh, and because they're at the brunt of, um, of sexual violence and sexual entitlement for the most part. Right. And I mean, I want to talk a bit more about that, what boys are learning about what what women want, what girls want, you know, what sex is supposed to be, because surely you know now what they're learning about sex they're learning from porn before they have any kind of sexual encounter right. i talked to so many men about yeah. this you know men that are around your age but also younger men um you know uh, before you even really know what sex is you're seeing porn and in inevitably i think that must shape your idea of what what a woman wants and and how right. sex should be that's right. I mean, that's what the academics call sexual scripts, which is just to say how you understand sex to occur between persons and how porn conditioned it is. And so here in Australia and perhaps in the US, there is such a push for consent education, consent education. But my colleagues and I at Collective Shot, we're just skeptical of this because if all you've got is consent, if that's the only ethical consideration and, and that's not actually finding fulfillment because it doesn't speak to things like mutuality and reciprocity. And it doesn't also speak to the fact that if a young boy is consenting to sex and a young woman is consenting to sex and their meaning of sex means sexual violence, means men's sexual entitlement, because that's how you've learned about it. Well, consent's not going to help you navigate that because you've both consented, but you've consented to a porn script.
You've consented to the sexual expectations of pornography. And Christine Ember writes that really well in Rethinking Sex, if anybody's read it, where it's like all these women are having these sexual experiences, but they're coming away saying, well, this wasn't satisfying or this was unsafe or this was just wasn't good or pleasurable, but I've consented. Like, is there something more? And so that's why I'm trying to get boys to consider, well, is there more to sex? And what is and what is porn conditioning you? And sadly, a lot of boys don't hear any counter messages. They've never heard the harms of porn. And that's what actually motivates me to keep going is like most of my audiences, 99% of boys say they've never heard like a message unpacking the realities of the harms of porn. Um, where are some boys have it and have that experience is you put porn induced erectile dysfunction on the table. And then all of a sudden boys have had this experience or come and talk to me afterwards, where it's the first time in human history, we're seeing adolescent boys with erectile dysfunction. And then, yeah, feel I free mean, to jump. On that yeah. One. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's disturbing. Cause I think that like those of us of an older generation think of erectile dysfunction as something that happens to older men and that it's often that's for physical reasons. I mean, sometimes it's for health reasons. Of course, mm -hmm. there's going to sometimes be problems in relationships um, or mm -hmm. mental health stuff that impacts it. But for young boys, like that's, that's weird. It, it's happening and you can and when I and when I say to the boys like I'm not just saying that to like fear monger and get them to quit porn of course I want them to quit porn and choose healthier alternatives and and go and find their dopamine in healthier ways and soothe themselves by actually healing themselves and you know shock horror doing things that are beneficial for them um, but I do let them know that this is a potential reality. It's not if you watch porn, you develop ED. It's just a correlating factor. And so we're seeing this. I've spoken to kind of uh, pelvic floor specialists, GPs and, and psychologists who have, who have men and young men presenting with, with ED. And as you know, once you rule out mental health um, conditions, relationship issues, hormonal issues, medicines being taken, and any physical issues, it's like, well, what are you left with? And obviously Gabe Deem from Reboot Nation was the first kind of young man that put this on the map in 2016 when he was in Time Magazine and Rolling Stone because he was a fit, healthy guy with the woman of his dreams and, and this happened to him. And recently, probably in the last two years, I've been hearing the, the other side, right? So that's unable to get an erection. And then I've been hearing from some young men who will come up to me afterwards and say that, you know, they're having sexual experiences. And no matter what they do, they are not able to climax because they're, they're conditioned to want to climax around pornography, around pixels, around, you know, them masturbating. And it's extraordinary. Like, it's so, so fascinating because as Gabe Deem talks, like it's this illusion that porn's going to heighten people's sexual experiences. But the research suggests that couples that both don't watch pornography have the best sex. Uh, and yet here's young people being fed this kind of illusion that this is what's going to kind of deliver them the best sexual experiences. And yet they find it not satisfying. And you see the anecdotal evidence of that in those BBC articles I mentioned earlier. But here in Australia, where, where guys are looking at what's happening on screen and then wondering why, A, it's not feeling as good as they'd hoped or, or she's not enjoying it or they're actually not enjoying it to that same extent, 
in real life. And so you've got this whole illusion around pornography uh, that isn't actually bringing that satisfaction. And I sometimes, if I need to, I shock the boys by saying, you know, I speak to therapists and sex therapists and counselors who tell me, you know, stories of, of men unable to get erections without multiple screens of porn going, you know, like they're not able to enjoy sex and they're watching porn or watching other people have sex whilst they have sex. You know, like how for me can we say that that is what is an embodied, you know, healthy and pleasurable vision of sexuality? Because you're just like you're just masturbating with someone else's body, like because your head is elsewhere. And I hear it from my gay friends and my straight female friends who tell me, you know, like they know from, from their perspective when a guy has just like what they call porn brain because he's just elsewhere. He's not able to actually be present and, and in tune with his partner. He's mm -hmm. off fantasizing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you really want to think about because I think that maybe some people think about porn as something that's just more exciting, or maybe something that will fulfill some, some kind of fantasy that their, their partner can't fulfill. But it's like, yeah, do you want to be having sex with a screen? Or do you want to be having a healthy, fun, engaging sexual relationship with a real person in real life um and i mean i wonder if you can talk a little bit more about what's happening in terms of the brain so when you're using pornography like how is that happening that you're watching pornography and that's having a negative impact on your ability to orgasm or have sexual pleasure or maintain interaction with your girlfriend or any real life woman yeah absolutely so yeah to throw back to where i started on my experience it's you know the psychologists and scientists call this a supernormal stimulus because as we've said it's normal to be attracted to people normal to have sexual desires to be aroused but porn hijacks that and what it's doing is part of our limbic system which is part of our reward system our emotions our pleasure pathways in our brains it's it's just providing such an extreme stimulus that our dopamine receptors which crave novelty are just continuously being bombarded with this 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 supernormal stimulus and so it starts to condition us to go oh i know where the brain just it's teaching the brain to go well i'm going to get a, a rush from this laptop in front of me i'm going to get a rush from my phone i'm going to i'm going to get a rush from my keyboard because our brain starts to associate these inanimate objects with sexual stimulation and if anyone's done first year psych we would remember pavlov's dog right pavlov was a researcher who was able to condition the dogs to re respond and start to salivate over a bell because every time he went to feed them he rang the bell and put food out rang the bell put food out and so the dogs came to associate the bell with the food and so they would salivate and in the same way we are conditioning our brains to associate the laptop the pixels the screen with sexual arousal and sexual stimulation so all of a sudden your brain starts to have an association not within a person not with embodied sexuality not with skin on skin contact but this laptop here in front of me that's what's teaching me to get my brain ready that 
there's going to be some action. And and you hear the anecdotal stories of that. Guys say, yeah, like they'll see their keyboard, they'll see their their phone, and, they, and that starts to give them that little rush because their brain associates that with sexual stimulation, with arousal, and then with orgasms, which is a powerful conditioning tool. Anyone who's studied brain science knows that this is a very powerful way to condition ourselves. And that's why I call it the most potent form of propaganda we've served up to humans, uh, because we're consuming it in a state of sexual arousal. So what is that doing to our beliefs and attitudes that are conditioned by the material that we're, that we're consuming? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about what happened for you in your experience with pornography? You know, at what point did you start to feel like maybe this wasn't good for you? I think it was always that lingering suspicion. Obviously, as a young person, it's more the sense of I know this isn't okay. Like I know that I shouldn't be looking at this. I've discovered something that's not okay. But then you're just so curious and you're just so curious and it, it just feeds that curiosity. And so in a sense, it's probably more that, you know, juvenile youth sense of it's not okay. But then once you start to actually become sexually active or form a relationship and you're thinking to yourself, well, why am I like looking at this when I have a partner? Like here I am looking at other people have sex when I have a partner. And I wouldn't have had the language, but it would have been this, this sense of, well, hang on a second here. This just, this isn't right. Like I'm training myself to be attracted to other people and to what they're doing rather than my actual partner. And so I think for me, that was well before I'd had any language, any of the research, any of the science was just this base instinct to say, yeah, hang on a minute. This just, this seems to be, you know, not in alignment with what would make sense and what is actually helpful here when you're, when you're wanting to actually be with your partner. And then it wasn't until I actually heard a talk like this and my friends had come back from Cambodia and they had been working with women and children who'd been uh, exploited there to into both um, sex trafficking, prostitution and to make pornography. And that for me was the first time where I really got to make the connection between what we're consuming is driving a global billion dollar industry and we're all patrons of it. And you can say I'm just watching mainstream vanilla pornography, but the reality is as we know now in light of the New York Times, in light of the you know class actions against uh, MindGeek who owns Pornhub, we now know that even in what is considered kind of mainstream, there is so much abuse, coercion, sexual assault, uh, throughout pornography, but I, I came to see for me that I did not want to be a patron of this industry. I didn't want my clicks generating ad revenue, driving an industry that commodifies humans and chews up and spits out women and children, especially like I just didn't want that to be something that I was contributing to in any way, shape or form. And that was then a catalyst for me to start learning more and more about yeah, exploitation, to start learning about prostitution and pornography and the realities of it. And that just took me yeah, down a pretty yeah, dark, dark place when you start to see the realities of this. You know, you see the, the, the lies. And obviously, I think that the gang at Exodus Cry have done an incredible job of, of sharing these stories of 
both traffickers of women who have been exploited and, and men who purchase and then the men, the directors of pornography. And, and most people are completely unaware of that. They're completely detached. And that's where I echo Robert Jensen's words when he says most men have never seen pornography. And what he means is we've never stepped away from it and actually recognize what it is, you know, like to, to be frank, like get your penis out of your hand, look at this for what this is, like what is actually going on here. And it is the degradation, the exploitation and the violation of women for men's entertainment and arousal. That is the primary core business model and doing that in more and extreme ways. Yeah, I think what I've heard a lot from men um, is that, you know, like, oh, you know, like, I'm not watching that weird stuff. Like, I'm not watching violent porn. Like, I'm not even, I don't like that, like, porn hub, like, mainstream porn. I'm just watching amateur porn. Like, they're just regular people who are having sex and just like to film themselves having sex. And I hear that so often. And then I see what porn is. And it just, it seems impossible that that could be true. And I, I'm not sure if they believe it or not. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think we all like to tell ourselves comforting lies rather than to sit with the reality of it. And it's why I find that it's been such hard work. As I've said, so many voices have gone before me, but this is not an issue. And I and I observe this, and there's a bit of a segue from what we're talking about, is unlike other justice issues, they're usually about making other people the baddies, corporations, politicians, mining companies, you know, whoever. They're the baddies, the bankers, the rich. And, and perhaps they are the baddies, who knows? But this is an issue where we don't get to scapegoat or limit it to just one set of humans who are morally culpable for what's happening here. This is an issue that cuts down every human heart because we've all in some ways contributed to pornography and porn culture and reinforced this idea that humans are just commodities. And so I think it's hard for people to sit with that. Uh, but I'm hearing more and more young men tell me that they they themselves don't want to be patrons. Like there's there's a push now more because people want to have good and enjoyable sexual experiences and for their penises to not stop working. Great, I'll work with that. But yeah, there is more of a push to see the justice and ethics of this and to be involved from that front. But that takes you kind of having to own your own story and and being able to tell that authentically and honestly and and kind of recognize that. But yeah, when it comes to people saying, oh, I'm just watching mainstream stuff, like most mainstream stuff is still violent. Uh, it still definitely harms the consumer because it's still conditioning you to commodify these people. It still is contributing to this industry that commodifies women and children and, and leads to the harms that continue to mount every single day that gets reported in the media now. And so I don't ever think there's a way to consume this ethically or, cre or create it ethically on both sides. It's just impossible. And the reality is, is you never know the material conditions in terms of which someone has created this, this supposed pornography. How have they consented? What, what has actually happened behind the camera? Whether it's amateur or whether it's supposedly, you know, more mainstream, we hear lots of women coming forward and saying they were pressured. And a lot of them can't say that until they've exited the industry because they know they'll lose work or they'll experience more violence, more pressure, or they won't be paid. And so we see it in some of the exit interviews. They smile on camera then get on Twitter and say, no, I had to say all that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be paid and I'd lose work. So again, what, what kind of consent is that? What kind of pressure and coercion exists that we're aware of, let alone the stuff that we're not even aware of? So yeah, I don't buy it. 
And the other thing is to hark back to that dopamine loop is you will develop a tolerance or what is known as desensitization. And you can say you're into vanilla amateur, you know, married people having sex. Like I've heard people say this to me, but the reality is you won't stay there. Your brain isn't going to be satisfied with that. And you're still going to want to, in time, search out more extreme novel stimulation because that's what your brain is hardwired for. And it's pushed on you. Like what happens on Pornhub is you're watching a video and then there's an ad for, or there's ads for all these other videos. So it's like, you're watching this and it's like, look at this, look at this. And I, I, you know, through Exodus Cry's work actually, and these um, lawsuits against MindGeek, one of the things that we learned was that these videos of girls who had been trafficked or who were being raped, um, who were underage, who were not consenting as, mm. you know, complicated as that, that label is in this kind of context. Um, you know, the Pornhub was advertising these videos like they, they were being sold and and pushed on men so you know you're on these sites of course you're not just gonna stay on this nope i'm only watching this one ethical video which you don't even really know if it's ethical or not but give me a break that's right. Yeah. It's a, just a comforting illusion that people tell themselves. And when I'm finding I'm dealing with a more hard hearted audience and I, I say to them and I say that I'm included in this is if you've watched any pornography, if you've accessed mainstream porn site, there's every chance you have consumed content of sexual exploitation, of trafficking, of underage girls, of um, sexual assault. Yeah. And we all have to live with that, right? That's just a reality. I'm not saying that, you know, you get accused of, are you shaming people? No, I'm just telling you the facts. And I'd be worried if you didn't feel any sense of guilt or remorse, like you'd probably be a sociopath, but that should affect us. That should cause us to say, well, hang on a minute here. What, what is actually going on? Am I okay with this? And that for me needs to be told because then you can make an informed decision. You can actually make a decision about, do you want to be a consumer of this or do you actually want to quit porn and porn culture and actually embody something healthier? Right. And, and you should care, you know, <laughs> I've, I've, I've watched these, these YouTube guys and these Twitch guys who are very into porn culture. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they have porn stars on their channels. They'll date porn stars. They're avid porn users. Um, that Hassan guy, I can't, I don't even want to know all their names, to be honest. I don't want to know that much about them, <laughs> but you know, they'll talk about consent as though they're feminists. Like, you know, well, it's really important that you consent. And when there was that big scandal around deep fakes, there was a few of these, these female Twitch streamers. Um, and it was discovered that another Twitch streamer had been watching deep fake porn of these girls. And these girls were really, really upset and felt really violated. And the response from these male streamers was, well, yeah, of course you're upset because there's no consent. But there's zero thought past that consent. There's zero thought of, uh, and consideration for the fact that women that they know um, women that they know who have been in porn and who've left porn, women they've had on their channels, women who they've dated have, you know, 
technically consented to doing this pornography and come out of the industry and said, this was so traumatic. I'm so regretful of what, you know, what happened to me it was horrible. I was pushed into this. I really didn't know what I was getting to. I regret doing it. And then for the response to be like, oh, well, they're consenting. I mean, really, like, are you a sociopath? <laughs> That's a crazy response. Uh, it, it completely lacks empathy. And again, the research is clear that porn consumers decrease capacity for empathy. You know, it doesn't shock me. They, these guys think these women are objects. They've dehumanized them. And anything that happens to them, well, they, they, they knew what they were signing up for. And you see the callousness online when you see former performers leave the industry. And the guys in the comments say, like, there's lots of supportive comments and say, yep so grateful but then there's guys in the comments saying well you know you deserve this you knew what you were signing up for you did it for the money you, you see this callousness you mm -hmm. see this 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 oh, really really vile degrading side and and i think you know like if nothing else when i when this comes up in in sessions and it's rare but it does it signals to everybody around us men and women girls and boys like that person is a walking red flag like their callousness their ability to dehumanize someone and to take pleasure and to feel like their suffering was was kind of owed to them um that's that's vile that's horrific but that's how a lot of people are conditioned to see this and to see these women to see them as deserving of it and you see that for lana rhodes mia khalifa and all these exited women you see these callous men because again you have to hold to that position because otherwise you might have to look at yourself and ask yourself why do you get off on watching women being degraded and violated and how can you continue to support the porn industry when you hear these stories? I mean, Lana Rhodes is such a good example because she was she went into porn when she was so young and so naive. And that's the story for so many of these girls. I mean, women are generally <clears throat> not going into porn at 35. You know, so she goes into porn. She does all this horrible stuff. And now she's talking about how traumatized she was and she's crying over it. And these guys see this happening and then they're still supporting the industry and acting like it's harmless. That's right. Absolutely. And that tells you everything you need to know. So I have been really glad, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, to see that a lot of men have been speaking out against pornography and men who are kind of, you know, they're like cool guys. They're like handsome men who are in good shape and they're successful. And, you know, like they're men who, you know, it's a good sell to hear from these guys, I suppose, for lack of a better word. Um, they're these guys who I see sort of as, you know, part of a almost like a male self-improvement movement um chris williamson i don't know if you're familiar with him from modern wisdom um like jordan peterson these types of men but i also noticed that the way that they're talking about pornography is in this way um you know i was i was listening to chris williamson's podcast today he was talking to this guy named dr k about gaming and and the impact of uh, social media and apps and pornography um, on young men in this case. And he 
saw porn as bad and problematic if the men using the porn had, you know, like an unhealthy or a compulsive or an addictive relationship with pornography, which is true. But it seemed like he also felt like you could have a healthy relationship to pornography, which I found strange. Um, be again, because I know what's going on on the other side of the screen. But I wonder what you think about that. I mean, do you think that it is possible or that it ever could be possible in, you know, an ideal world for there to be a healthy relationship with porn? Do you think that this is inherently um, harmful? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. As I said, there's there's no way to both ethically consume it or ethically create it. And especially the harms to the consumer, like that is just so clearly documented that all pornography leads to this dehumanization that leads to a conditioning of sexual templates around pixels on a screen. So at the very least, the consumer is harmed. Uh, and that's been proven. Then you've got to look at impacts on mental health, loneliness and dysfunction, these sorts of things. And so I think when these kinds of guys talk about it, I think their their focus is purely around the men themselves rather than looking at this in a more uh, structural way and more looking at this and what the feminists have done and looking at, well, what does this say about the realities of the world? What is the actual impacts more broadly to just that individual consuming it? And so, yeah, I think there is a naivety there. Yeah, I mean, it might be, I, you know, I get the impression that maybe some of these guys are sort of new to the topic. So I like I appreciate the willingness to speak critically about pornography, because as you and I both know, it's not that easy to speak critically yeah. about pornography. People get really angry yeah. um, and you you get attacked and you get trashed or you get called a prude or if you're a woman you get called a man hater i mean what kinds of like talk to me about that what kind of feedback have you gotten from people when you when you've been speaking out about this um do you know what not as much as what women get and that's the reality i think is very hard and like i'll be honest and i don't want to say this with any sense of bravado but like come bring facts bring your receipts and let's have this conversation you know like like the, the global evidence is too, too, too strong. The, the anecdotal stories continue to mount. And so I think for a lot of people, they, they know it's wrong. Um, if, if anything, I get a few people who more message me about people like Andrew Tate. I don't get too much pushback about pornography, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I was pleased to even be on a state TV show the other day. And, and it was the first time I think that I've seen, and I was a part of it where there was a porn critique from myself, um, and others who weren't as radical as me, but they, there was no, oh, but what about, or what about this? Or maybe it's good in this regard. And for me, I think uh, as this research continues to mount, I think it's going to be nearly impossible to hold to a pro-porn position or even a neutral position. And that's what I want. Like, I want that. And I want to be part of that. And I know I'm coming into this far later than others, but that's that's where this is heading. And I think it's going to be very impossible to hold to that view. You're just going to have to deny reality and, and very much adopt those really callous attitudes of those men that we've identified. But yeah, I do want to acknowledge that it is women that usually get labeled all sorts of things as a result of this. Um, I think it, it's just the way that this is unfortunately uh, shaping those attitudes of more toxic men. And it's, it's easy to critique women. 
Yeah, it is easy to critique women and it's it's easy for men in particular, but I suppose I've gotten this from women to actually to accuse women who are critical of pornography of being jealous. Like, oh, mm-hmm. well, you're just jealous because these guys want to have sex with us and not you or because your boyfriend's looking at us or not you or because you're not as hot as these women. You're not as sexy. That's so cringe. I know. Well, and it's just so it's oh. so ridiculous because it's like as if any woman, you know, like sorry to be rude, but as if I, I mean, maybe for a young woman, but as if a woman my age is like, God, I wish I was a porn star. Like, I don't want that. Like, what woman wants that? No woman wants really? that. But also how sad, like, if that's yeah. where you're getting your validation from is a bunch of coomers on the internet who want to have sex with, like, they'd have sex with a freaking, I'm not even going to say it, you know? So it's like, you know, like. <laughs> You know, that they're just watching whatever video pops up. It's not like they're like seeking out this woman. Like they're not seeking out you in particular because God, you're so hot and sexy and perfect. And you're like the perfect fantasy. It's like, man, your video is what showed up on the screen and you've got all the right parts. Like, come on. Totally. And it's superficial. They're not even attracted to you. They're attracted to a a persona you've adopted, no Mm -hmm. doubt embellished by lighting, makeup, plastic surgery. They know nothing about you unless you want to say that the sum total of you is how you present sexually on a screen and how tragic that would be. And that's a philosophical conversation for another day. But who wants to be desired for that? And let me just say this as a man, because us men don't say this enough, is like, I don't want to be desired just for how I look. Like what makes intimacy, uh, and intimacy isn't just sex, it it can be, but it's like what makes intimacy beautiful and profound and meaningful and desired is the fact that this person actually likes you for who you are, not the sum total or just perhaps an element of your sexual parts or sexual performance. Like how tragic. And so, yeah, there's a whole piece we could do on unpacking that and and the illusion that that is. Yeah. And I mean, speaking as a woman who's had, you know, enough years of experience being a woman to know and who knows a lot of women and who's spoken to a lot of other women, you know, that kind of superficial desire is not actually validating like it doesn't actually make you feel good about yourself what makes you feel good about yourself is i mean first of all you know appreciating and liking and respecting yourself and that's never just going to be about your body parts it isn't um and certainly you're not going to feel that way because men like you for those superficial reasons and you know that it's just it's not something that's lasting um and if you're looking for men who are looking for that kind of fulfilling of a a superficial fantasy that's going to be temporary as well and you're going to feel real bad when when it wears off it's just not it's not a long-term means of feeling good about yourself ever that's right that's yeah. right. You've outsourced it to the to the mob or to this individual, whether they think you're desirable or not. And that's flimsy. That's that's not gonna that's not gonna sustain you through life. And unfortunately, that is the illusion. And trying to get all young people to see that that we've placed such an emphasis on how people look and on their sexual desirability, especially. And and that's not producing the the the, the results we'd like. Otherwise, explain why we have rising rates of anxiety, depression, loneliness, all sorts of mental illness. 
you know, like we're not seeing young people flourish in these times. And it's not just sexualized media. It's the combination of social media and everything else that goes with it. But yeah, if this was if this was actually leading us into a supposed more empowered future, well, I can't see any of the signs of that. No. And I was I was just reading an article published um, by Jonathan Haidt the other day about um, the research that he's been doing around the impact of social media on on young women and their mental health. He's obviously done a lot of work around this kind of thing. And it's very clear that since 2011, girls' mental health has gotten way worse. They feel way worse about themselves. They are suffering more depression, more anxiety, more insecurity, more body hatred, all of these things. And what's the difference between 2011 and now? Exactly. Yeah. All the graphs that you can see, and we, we speak to them uh, in our PD sessions, and you see it all from that 2008, 2009, just rising from introduction of smartphones and social media. It's, it's, it's pretty horrific, actually. I, I want to talk a bit about this idea of, of shaming um, mm-hmm. and this idea that, you know, if we're, if we're shaming men around their porn use, um, that's wrong. And I sort of, I go back and forth on this because I don't think that shaming somebody is going to necessarily be a successful strategy to get them to stop doing it. But at the same time, I think that a lot of that shame isn't like an external shame. I think it's like an internal shame. I'm going to read you a message from, from my, from the boys. So yeah, go for it. I'll just be scrolling, but feel free to kick this off and I'll find this in two seconds. Um, Yeah. And I, because I think, I mean, when people talk about, I mean, in my experience over talking about this for the past 10 years, what I've gotten a lot from third wave feminists, um, from libertarians who have sort of a libertarian approach to prostitution and and the sex industry and pornography to leftists and progressives who use this um, sex work is work mantra. And if you're consenting and you're getting paid, then it's all above board. Um, Is that there's this sort of religious shame that's wrong. And I'm not, I'm not a religious person. I never have been a religious person. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't fit into this box. But nonetheless, what I know when I talk to men about pornography is that they are ashamed about their porn use. And I don't think it's coming from any, like, is that coming from religion or external? And there has to be a reason that you feel bad about this because porn is so normalized. Porn is completely mainstream. The messages that boys and girls get and young men and young women get over and over and over is that porn is fine. It's a harmless fantasy. It's totally normal. It's akin to masturbation. So what, you know, like it's, you know, it's part and parcel with masturbation now. And Mm -hmm. so I don't think that there is a lot of shaming going Mm -hmm. on around pornography, but yet it's there. I don't think so as well. Yeah, I don't think so at all. And I, I think that is just, again, another smokescreen for people not have to, to reckon with what is actually going on here. What are these realities? Why have we normalized? As we've said, why is it more mainstream and yet more violent, 
more degrading, more racist. Like people don't want to grapple with that because that's hard to sit here and say like, why am I watching this? Why is it more incestuous? Like why is so much of it stuff that is just completely out of sync with our supposedly progressive, enlightened social justice values that anywhere else it's not okay, but in the presence of an erection on a porn site, it's all good. Yeah. We can't reckon with that. My whole thing, and I was just scrolling to find this bit of feedback I got from a young man last week that sums this up so perfectly, right? So I just present what I've said today, but with even more research, more of the science to young men across Australia, right? And they've never heard this before. Now, my whole thinking is, is like, I do this as a critique of porn, porn culture and society. I'm not critiquing any individual. I'm not even saying if you look at porn, you're bad. What I say to young men is if you've watched porn or been exposed to porn, you've been preyed on by a billion dollar industry that's hijacking your hardwired interest in sex and sexuality and probably from a very young age and you haven't even developed the relational emotional mental capacities to either reject that or think critically through it so you're not in trouble you're not wrong or bad if you've been exposed or consuming it like it's an unfair fight so there's the there's the reality Uh, and then but it's to say well but now what you know, like, but now what? I didn't go searching for it. I was shown it, but I'm still have some moral responsibility in all of this. What does that actually look like? And so I want to present the facts in a way that you can make an informed decision. And I like what Brené Brown says, where it's just like, if you don't ever feel shame, you're probably a sociopath, right? And so I'm not trying to shame anyone, but if presenting this information makes you feel guilty or makes you feel a bit uncomfortable, like sit with that. But we live in a society that says you should never feel bad or feel uncomfortable. And so let me just push that back, project that back on you because you're the person that's introduced some information to me that doesn't sit well with me that makes me feel xyz this is what a young man said to me last week he said thanks again for the talk you made a lot of people myself included uncomfortable which i think was really necessary and he goes on to ask about how he can change from here and i love that this is a 16 year old boy who recognizes that discomfort is part of how we actually grow and learn. And I'm kind of shocked that we live in an age that kind of acknowledges that. We've learned that from our kind of philosophical stoic past. We have, you know, um, self-help gurus and other people that say like, you're not gonna get anywhere in life without discomfort, but it's like, you make me feel uncomfortable about my porn consumption and that's not okay, you know? But it's like, well, and then we see other social justice movements who go out of their way to weaponize shame and make people feel bad about all sorts of things. And that gets a free pass, yeah. you know, for things that people aren't even directly morally culpable for. And so I find this all really, really perplexing and we don't even have time to unpack all of that. But we're not actually against shame because there are some movements that weaponize shame 100 percent. What I'm trying to do is present an invitation after an invitation to consider how porn isn't healthy, how it's harmful, how things could look post porn. What would it actually look like to form our own desires, relationships, sexual interests, sexual experiences, not hijacked and conditioned by pornography? For me, that is a that is an invitation. And to say you've been preyed on and groomed by an industry that doesn't care about your emotional, mental, physical, sexual, relational well-being. And and what would it look like to actually reject that and choose something healthier? And so, yeah, 
that may make someone feel shame, but are we trying to shame people? No. Um, but yeah, you may sit with some uncomfortable thoughts, but I wouldn't be sitting here doing what I'm doing today if I haven't felt uncomfortable about all sorts of things in my life and and still do. Like that's growth, that's maturity. And I don't know why we reject it on this issue, but in, in other ways, especially in more progressive circles, we weaponize shame. Yeah, I think that that's such an important point. And I mean you know, if you are feeling shame, I think, about watching pornography, I think the answer is not to reject that and push that away and pretend that it's not there and blame somebody else, but to think about why you're feeling that way. Um, and finally, yeah, I mean, I wonder what, what you would say to men and boys who are watching right now and maybe have been thinking about their porn use or or maybe they are now just after listening to this um what should they do you know how do they stop was it hard was it hard for you to stop mm -hmm. great question yeah i would just say to them that like you are not who the porn industry says you are you know like that's fundamental to this is i hold you and i think all of us who work in the anti-porn space hold men hold women hold humanity to a really high regard that says we are not what porn culture says we are that we can create both relationships sexual experiences and a and an experience of our own and shared humanity not dictated by pornography and i think that's worth fighting for in a personal Personal sense in a relational sense and for society but I think everyone needs to get clear on like what porn has said to them what it has conditioned them to see and what their life could look like free from that and would that be worth it and this is to say that you may be feeling all sorts of things in this moment I don't think you should live in shame I don't think you, that is the best necessary motivator for transformation but it can certainly be a catalyst to sit with those experiences those thoughts those feelings and then get clear on what this would look like for me it took me I reckon six to twelve months to reboot to, mm -hmm. to quit pornography and we got to do that through connection through community no one does it alone there are no superheroes it's not purely you know being uh willpower and white knuckling it it's actually trying to work out like why do you turn to pornography is it boredom is it distraction is it to soothe is it because you're feeling rejected is it because you're feeling depressed and you're chasing those dopamine hits like i say to the lads like no free dopamine you got to go work for your dopamine like go and find things that make you come alive go and do things that align with your values achieve a goal learn a piece of music finish an art project climb a mountain lift weights like go and build something together as part of a volunteer project i don't know but like go and do those things and i see so many men who yeah use this to soothe women too people are also looking at it for other reasons but i reckon get clear on that yeah. get clear on what what that is and what life on the other side of it would look like and in some senses, you know, some psychologists might create a model where it's like, well, what would it look like and what would it feel like to 10 years time to have overcome porn? What would that look like? Right. And conversely, if this was something that continued to master you, 
what would that look like? What would that do to your own sense of well-being, your own sense of yourself as a relational, sexual, emotional human? What would it do to your relationships? How would you feel about yourself? And to try and honestly think about that as much as possible and to think like, how good would it feel? And that's the thing that the boys resonate most with that they come up to and they're like, yeah, I've tried. And they're like, I love the idea of what it would feel like to not feel like this thing masters me, but I've mastered it. And for me, I actually think it's the rite of passage for this generation. Like no one's going to war, no one's building a weapon, no one's slaying a wild animal, right? But I reckon if you could make it into your 20s, and for those of us of over our 20s, it's cool, you know? But like if you could, because this younger generation, I think, has the hardest cards dealt to them with porn and smartphones and social media and bots. If you could make it into your 20s and have mastered this, it's like, what else could you do? Like you've overcome such a, a challenge that hijacks your natural brain and body connection. What would that look like and how would you feel about that? And so, yeah, I kind of encourage guys to think about these principles. I have them in a one page document where I re link to other resources. So if they want something like this, if they want to have that conversation, obviously, you'll no doubt link it all and people can have that and make that available to them. But yeah, I, I just would want to say that, guys, if this is you, if you're even like consuming this every day, like, um, that that doesn't have to be what the rest of your life looks like. And I think people know that this isn't helping them to be their best selves. I'm interested in them being their healthiest self and actually contributing. And it's incredible. I've seen men who are consuming porn six, seven hours a day, looking at it th on three different screens just to get an erection, quit porn, transform their lives. So if they can do it, anyone can do it. And it's so worth it. And it is such a liberating feeling. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Where can men and uh, yeah, boys, I, I hate to have to always keep saying boys, but it's true. Where can people go to find resources, to find your work, to find um, support to uh, get off of porn? Great. So can find out more of our advocacy education work at collectiveshout.org. If people want to get in touch with me directly, that's my handles last of the Romans on Instagram, where you see a lot of my content. Uh, and then I can recommend other resources as well from there if you want to get in touch. But Fight the New Drug, Reboot Nation, Exodus Cry, uh, ResistPorn.org. There's lots of great resources out there, but collectiveshout.org and I'm at last of the Romans. Perfect. Thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you about this. I'm so appreciative of you and in, in, in the work that you're doing. And, and I appreciate you making the time to talk with me today. So good. Thank you so much, Megan. So good. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you access to special content, early access to episodes, and the opportunity to submit questions to future guests ahead of interviews. Plus, you can DM me to your heart's content, and I will reply. You can also follow and support my work on Substack at meganmurphy.ca, or you can support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. 
You can donate directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. <laughs>